Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Luke Stutters. Hello. John Epperson. Hello, everyone. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're talking to Pavel Dabrowski. Hello, I hope I got you? close. Yeah, very close. This episode is brought to you by Forest Admin. Forest Admin is the simplest way for Rails developers to build internal tools for their teams while saving precious development time. With Forest Admin, you get the whole package. Full customization, privacy-centric design, and features such as CRUD, searching, filtering, sorting, and pagination, and much more. All you have to do is plug the Rails gem into your app, and you have a complete admin panel on your hands. All in a matter of minutes and without having to bother with coding. Check them out and get started for free at forestadmin.com slash rails. Again, that's forestadmin.com slash rails. All right, Pavel, you've been on the show before. Hopefully you're still writing your own RSpec. I think that's what we talked about last time. Do you want to just remind people who you are besides writing your own RSpec? I, I'm still impressed by that, by the way. Okay, uh, thank you very much. Uh, so my name is Pavel Dombrowski. I work as a CTO at Iron Company, uh, where we build Ruby apps and touch other technologies as well. And if someone might recognize me, uh, that's probably because I'm quite active in the community and I specialize in writing uh, articles about Ruby. I think that, that article about the RSpec was the first of the more popular articles I wrote. And yeah, I run a blog along liferuby.com and I post some articles as a guest author. And this is one of the reasons I'm here today on the show. So thank you very much for the invitation. Yeah, thanks for coming. Let's let's just dive in and talk about the article that we invited you to come on and, and talk to us about. And that is a deep dive on Webpacker. Now, I have to admit that I've kind of gotten used to Webpacker, but I still I still don't really get it. Okay. Is, is that a terrible thing for me to admit? No, no. It was a, a kind of mystery for me from the beginning. Uh, but uh, when I saw this topic on the list of the articles that the App Signal suggested to me, I decided to take a deep dive. I feel the pain at the first time, but when I dive in, it shows me that Webpacker is just a bridge between Webpack and, and Race application and is just a simple library. So that, that that's it. That's how it works. And I think you should not be aware of how it works. Sweet. Sounds like our episode's done, guys. Let's pack up and go home. Don't be scared, Chuck. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, my my deal, I guess, is that when I want something done, like, you know, I've pulled in React Rails and I've pulled in, you know, the view. What do I call it? Uh, duct taping view into my app. And then, you know, I pull something else in and I kind of, you know, copy and paste some JavaScript in there to make it work. And it's still kind of black magic, right? I just find stuff on Stack Overflow that gets done what I need done. <laughs> yeah, I'm yeah. really showing you all how lazy I am. But, you know, and I know that there's Webpack stuff that goes on on the back end. But beyond that, yeah, it's just, you know, Sprocket seemed like a lot less of a black box to me. And I'm always just trying to get stuff done instead of trying to understand what the tool actually does, I guess. Yeah, I agree. Sprockets are simpler. I'm not a big fan of pushing a lot of JavaScript into Rails application directly, but I always consider Webpacker as something like gem file, but for JavaScript files. So it's easier to, to deal with it when you treat it like this. Right. So what am I missing? Like, what what is this deep dive? 
get me so that I can uh, understand what's going on here? Well, basically, uh, Webpacker triggers uh, the Webpack, but in the way that is less painful for Rails developers, so they don't have to deal with all those npm commands and stuff like this. Mm-hmm. Yes, so this is the you know the clue of the article that it really helps Rails developer to deal with Webpack with uh, writing less JavaScript code if we don't want to. Gotcha. It doesn't. It doesn't take away the the pain of getting your JavaScript libraries that don't want to play nicely with each other working together. But it does take away the pain of uh, what you're saying is it does take the pain away from, okay, I have a bunch of JavaScript stuff. I want it to run in my Rails pipeline. What do I do? Well, you install libraries and Webpack uh, takes care of all the changes so you don't have to reload your application. Mm -hmm. And Webpack also solves the conflict between, uh, you know, between different libraries and make sure that the code is loaded into right order. So, you know, when you load jQuery, uh, it ensures that it's loaded before you really need it. So you don't have to do it manually and Webpacker uh, connect those things and make the configuration less painful and easier for the race developer that don't want to, you know, write many lines of JavaScript configuration code. I, I have one correction in my experience. It resolves conflicts between packages or libraries that you install via Yarn. If you bring in your own thing, good luck to you. Yeah, <laughs> that's <good>. <laughs> Def- Definitely true. I, I actually was recently working on a project where we were using Spree. And if you guys have used Spree in the past... I have used Spree in the past. That is a mm-hmm. big, big thing. It is. Yep. They also, all of their stuff is currently on sprockets, delivered by sprockets. And I wanted something that was not going to play nicely with that. And I, right or wrong, I made the decision to webpackify or whatever you want to call it, the spree stuff. And it was quite the journey. And the issue, as you noted, Chuck, wasn't that I was having conflicts between the JavaScript files that I needed to bring in so much because... You're right. Uh, handling your dependencies, you handle that in Yarn and other, and other ways. But it was the fact that Spree was expecting everything to live in, or I'm sorry, all the JavaScript files that were included with Spree were expecting everything to live in global space. And I was having to manage all of those problems. So, yep. Yep, definitely going from uh, Sprockets to Webpacker might be painful. I migrated some of the applications and, you know, you upgrade the Rails version and then you came to the Webpacker and you got a lot of JavaScript warnings and errors and you have to deal with that. And once you deal with that, the life gets easier. Yeah. So, you know, this is this is a deep dive in your uh, in your blog post. So, you know, we're kind of talking at a high level what it does. And a deep dive to me is how it works. So how does it actually work, right? Because, yeah, I mean, this, this is kind of the summary that we give every time we talk about Webpacker. But, but under the covers, like, how does it actually do what it does? And how is this different from just, uh, I guess, pulling in Webpack and just setting up your own build system like you would do on any other Angular, React, or Vue app? Okay, so I explained there that there is a YAM configuration file, and I show uh, how the library pulls the configuration file and how it triggers the webpack by collecting all the options you pass 
to it and the configuration options and how the configuration option for JavaScript files are pulled in. And I go to really deep into the files to show uh, how the JavaScript is triggered by the Ruby code. So this is quite interesting there. How does how does it do so? Uh, well, it, it basically collects those options and triggers a comment that you can easily trigger by yourself using the command line. But you know, you don't have to type all those characters. Uh, the webpacker does it for you by using the configuration you did in the YAML files. So that's why I think it's easy, but it's not easy when you use webpacker on a daily basis, but it's easier when you dive into the source code and see that it basically does those simple things. I, uh, I recently ran into something that I think kind of demonstrates a little bit of what you're talking about. So. I wanted to kind of debug how my package was getting created. And when you, uh, I don't remember exactly the node command or anything, but you like, you do like node, whatever the path is to your webpacker executable is, and you have to pass, pass a debug flag to it. Whereas you can, you can actually trigger this in the webpacker YAML instead. And you can also trigger it by passing, uh, a different flag to the Webpacker executable that Webpacker provides for you as well. There's a few different ways that you can trigger it or whatever, but instead of running that gigantically long node command, you uh, run a much shorter Ruby version and it handles passing all the right stuff. Yeah, that's correct. And it also helps with the deployment because it compiles files for you. Uh, so you don't have to take care of that. And the difference between the way Webpacker works on production and development is that on the development, you have the web dev server that reloads mm -hmm. the code live. So you don't have to you know, refresh manually all the pages when you update the JavaScript code. Yeah, I think for my work, and I haven't set this up on my own yet. I kind of want to see how they have it set up, but they actually have the Webpack dev server set up in a separate Docker container. And then they have that stuck in a Docker Compose. And so, yeah, it does a lot of that work, you know, kind of off to the side. And so it's it's in kind of its own logging system and everything, which makes it a little more convenient to deal with. That is how I deliver uh, Docker Composes for every project that I work on as well, is we include the Webpack server in a separate, it's, its own Docker container. Works pretty handily. The only time that it you doesn't work. You mean the dev server? Yeah, so the Webpack dev server, you have to run mm -hmm. locally, as as Pavel was saying, to serve, you know, your assets in, in dev mode or whatever. Because in production, you pre-compile them first. Right. Um, just like you would do today, right? Pre-compile them. But um, in development mode, you have to have that Webpack dev server in order to get your a whole bunch of fancy things. I'm, I'm kind of curious with the way you have that set up, John. Uh, so the way we have things set up, and we have kind of a funky setup because we have a legacy system that we also have to connect into. So do you have like Nginx proxying between the two for assets then? Or um, not how does that dev. work? Not for dev. Not uh, for, for dev. production, yes, but not for development. Uh, for okay. development, we typically just... So I set up a uh, docking container that runs the web server, right? Which is just mm -hmm. Puma usually right. until until something better comes out. And then I have a separate container that's basically running the same image that's running any workers. So right. we use Sidekick or Rescue or whatever we use. Mm -hmm. 
and then a separate container, same image again, that's running the Webpack dev server. Yeah, I, and then they I all guess share a bundle directory. Good. I, I guess the question that I have though is, oh, I see. They're sharing a bundle directory. So when you make the request to the web server for the like the images or whatever, it's still pulling it from the dev, like the dev container. Yes, but but the yeah. the web yeah. the webpack uh, container is actually doing the work of just rerunning the compile whenever it has to. Yes, they're all okay. basically sharing the same code. So you change your code, they all see the update, right? And they're sharing a bundle directory, so they see any changes okay. to the bundle. Yeah, I guess I imagine just proxying like the slash public slash images or something. But what you're saying makes way more sense. It's just using volumes or whatever. Yep. I can I can post an example. Uh, I have an example in my ship lane, Jim, or whatever, that mm-hmm. is pretty close to what I typically use. So I can post that, just a link directly to it. Very cool. Okay, so so uh, Webpacker. And and yeah, I highly recommend doing it that way. It, you want, you, I mean, Pavel was talking about the Webpack dev server being like a huge, hugely beneficial thing. Like, I agree. Like, it's, it's way better than pre-compiling your assets by hand every time and then trying to load it. Like, it's just a pain in the butt. And plus, all the people that are doing JavaScript, you know, normally have the Webpack dev server running, I feel like. So they're used to it. It's a cool tool. Mm-hmm. And if you set up hot reloading, it gives you hot reloading. gives you a lot of nifty stuff. Pavel, anything about the Webpack dev server that we've been missing as we've been yapping about it? No, I think everything was told is a quite simple server when talking about the race part. Yeah, it's more complicated when talking about the JavaScript, but I didn't dive into you know, uh, Webpack source code. So... Uh, I haven't discovered the details yet. One thing that I have a question about with the Webpack dev server is that sometimes it feels like it's rather slow. You know, I'll make a request to the dev server and it'll sit there and it'll go, I'm still thinking about your JavaScript. (laughs) All right. And then it'll finally load up. Is there a way to make that faster? Oh, I'm not sure now because I haven't working with, uh, you know, race application where there is a Webpacker and lots of JavaScript. Usually, JavaScript is a separated application uh, on the front end, so um, I haven't dealt with such uh, problems yet. So I'm, I don't know the answer now. How much RAM disk are you compiling? RAM disk is always the answer. Just put everything in a RAM disk. <laughs> Throw hardware at the problem, Luke. It makes your dev uh, a lot more exciting too, you know. When the not not so much when you're on a laptop because you've got the battery, haven't you? So the power cut isn't going to kill your work. You've 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 got the operating system crash. But if you're on a Mac, you know when you last time you saw a Mac crash that hadn't been horribly mistreated. Yeah, put it all in the RAM disk and just cross your fingers. Does horrible mistreatment include using Docker containers? Because <laughs> as I occasionally hose my Mac. Yeah, I've I've been sitting in Webpack quite a lot last night, funnily enough, swapping out a, a React, I guess you'd call it a charting library. We call them graphs in the UK, but uh, it's they're all charts in the States. And uh yeah, that was uh that was a really interesting experience. One of those experiences when you have to throw away your entire charting library and use a different one. <laughs> and, oh, that sounds fun. 
Yeah, and like I said, the modern JavaScript tooling with Webpacker makes it really quite easy. You just kind of uh, put the put the library name in Node or something goes off and gets it for you, and yeah, away you go. So these these tools are really quite wonderful. I was wondering, Pavel, have you done any tree shaking in the context of Rails? Because this is one of the things where I know Webpacker can do it. But I've never really found a good guide to doing it. No, not really, not yet. This is uh, I asked because the the uh, quite quite a few of the articles on your blog, the Long Live Ruby blog, are really quite excellent. I don't know if the others have had a chance to look through, but there's some there's some real crackers. I've been been on that all day. The some of some of the some of the best articles I've read. One of them was on, I think, dry monads. Yes, and yeah. uh, that's one of the best monad articles I've read. Like I said, the, the web, the webpacker, the webpacker explanation is good about how webpacker wraps around webpack, you know, so that you don't have to use all awful webpack commands. But there's a really great article on there about the the um, monads. Where is it gone? I think it was the article about value objects pattern. I think I mentioned yes. monads there. Yes, and uh, you talk about the the dry monad library in passing. And Did I yeah, mention that's... that this stuff hurt, hurts my brain? Because you guys are hurting my brain. Well, no, I recommend you give it a read. You go to longlivereby.com, give it a read, because it's one of the first articles where I've uh, I've actually started to come around to it a bit. And the essence of it is... That uh, if you really, really hate writing if statements to check if things are nil or not, if if you can't stand nesting your code and you want to do that that check all in one line, then monads are your friend, correct? Yes, that's correct. Just, that's it. It's just, yeah. just monads were invented by programmers who hate if statements. Just... <laughs> Is is Luke pushing you uh, to a slightly different conclusion, or is that really the conclusion, Pavel? <laughs> I'm not sure, but you know, the the whole dry family is a, a quite good approach to to code writing, and I use it uh, a lot in the fintech applications with the event event driving architecture, and it really works really well, and we really like it in our company. So, yeah, we appreciate uh, the idea behind the, the dry family. I'm not sure how deep we want to dive into this since we were originally intending to talk about Webpacker. But uh, I was kind of wondering how uh, how you felt, whether you liked it better than like null pattern, for example, right? Which is another pattern that's commonly used to solve that similar problem. Yeah, I think patterns are great, but some people use patterns in a wrong way by complicating very simple code and i think we should always tr try to write pure ruby code pure ruby classes when it's possible instead of mixing everything so i think i'm a big fan of pattern but uh, especially those simple ones like dry monads or value objects or services that are thin of course so yeah i really like them and i prefer to to use them when it's possible of course Sweet. So going back to Webpacker real quick, I have another question, and that is, do you have any tips for debugging stuff? Because one thing that I found as I dive into configuring Webpacker is that sometimes, especially as I get into those 
JavaScript files where I'm configuring stuff and I'm not sure what I'm doing is that I screw stuff up and then I get these arcane messages <laughs> where I'm just not sure what I did wrong, but it's not doing what I want it to do. Do you have any do you have any tips for debugging that stuff, right? It's figuring out where you went wrong. Yeah, sometimes you have got your dance dirty and, uh, you know, use the binding prime inside the Webpacker library to see if your code is really reaching the endpoint it should reach. So uh, that's one of my advices. And otherwise, you know, the configuration is quite simple. So if it's something not working, then probably you should dive in a little more deep to find out the cause. Okay, well, usually it's not, my issue is not in the webpacker.yaml because that's fairly well documented. Usually it's in like the application.js or, or .pack.js or js slash pack slash application.js or whatever. You know, I'm trying to get it to load jQuery as, you know, the jQuery variable, the global variable or the dollar sign variable so that I can use it on the page because, you know, there's something in there that I brought in that's expecting it that for whatever reason, I can't find it in Yarn because it's proprietary or something. And so I had to bring it in separately. And yeah, it, it's not showing up. And so I'm trying to figure out how to get Webpacker to put it in the way I want. And it, it's either giving me an error or it's just not showing up in the first place or things like that. And the documentation on Stack Overflow is spotty at best because it's not really documentation. You can always try to, you know, uh, load it separately with the Webpacker. I think there's a helper for the views that does this for you. But I'm not sure now what is the name for this. But it loads the application.js file, so you can load any file you wish to be, you know, loaded automatically and then compile it in the production. So okay. maybe this I'll is the to... way to solve this problem. Yeah, I'll have to look into that. Because, yeah, my one of my habits... I'm so good at design that I just go buy a layout off of uh, Theme Forest because uh, you know it's like it's like oh I'm gonna need a design for this page and that's where I give up because I just I can't I, I'm just not gonna do a good job it's not gonna look good and honestly I don't want to figure it out I just you know I want to make crap work that's my thing and so so I'll go pick it up but some of the layouts on Theme Forest is like oh you're gonna use Bootstrap version you know, negative eight, right? Because it's so dang old, right? And so I want to update it, right? You know, I need to bring in the older version and, you know, it's just bringing it in off of Yarn and then making it play nice or an older version of jQuery. It's just tricky. And so, yeah, getting it all to come together that way is hard. And yeah, so figuring out, okay, how do I get this to come in? You know, this library is so old that it's not even in NPM. And so, yeah. It's like, okay, well, I've got to expose enough of this stuff to get it to play. And then, you know, maybe either find something to replace it, you know, for security or other reasons or, you know, but I want it to work first because if I can get it to work, you know, as expected, then I can turn around and I can start reworking it. But if I can get it into Webpacker, then I can make Webpacker manage the, the stuff. And so, yeah, I know I'm creating pain for myself, but. Yeah, what can you do? So yeah, that's kind of the scenario that I'm talking through there. I feel you, Chuck, because I have done this scenario, oh, I don't know, four or five times now. And and it's been different every time. Um, yeah. Because Webpacker or Webpack upgraded and now I'm using version four and my 
old app was using version three. And now, I mean, I, I think the latest one that I did, you know, I'm using exposed loader to handle that stuff. Right. And, but mm -hmm. back when I was doing something else, I don't even remember what it was anymore because, you know, I did it at the beginning of the app and then it worked and then I pretty much never touched it. Right. So, uh, it's not something that you, I don't, I, I don't feel like if you don't code in it every day, you don't become an expert in it. So, yeah. Uh, and I don't remember it from two years ago very well. So, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's messy and it take, it took, oh shoot. Like uh, when I basically at this point, I estimate that getting an app like that, right. Getting that running takes like a half day to a whole day of like banging my head against the keyboard, looking at a million stack overflow things, trying to figure out from Webpacker documentation and other stuff, what's the right way. And mostly just experimenting and having tons of failures where it just doesn't work. And then just try just different stuff till I find the right combo of things. But yeah, there's some stuff. Exposed loader. Uh, there's something that you put in your config webpack. I'm sorry, I'm like totally looking at an app right now to kind of config webpack. Uh, you know, either you're in your environment file or if it needs to be specific for development or something, put in there. You probably use provide plugin. But the basic gist of it, right, is that when webpack loads everything, they're all like, all your JavaScript files are in their own namespace. So they can't, so right. one JavaScript file, so none of your JavaScript files can talk or can use jQuery stuff because jQuery is in its own namespace. Yeah. So you have to look for the plugins that, you know, get the uh, jQuery variable out of the jQuery file. And then you have to import that into all your plugins or you have to load it in a global space, which is probably yep. what most people are doing. Yep, exactly. And the, the difference is, is with sprockets, you would just say, I've got all these files, you know, off of ThemeForest, right? You just drop them in your JS folder, and then you'd say, <laughs> load them in the same order as they are in the HTML file, and then you were done. And so, yeah, it got trickier. But the flip side is, is that it is nice having them in the package manager and having them managed by Yarn. You can pull the proper upgrades when you need them. And you can work around some of this stuff. And then if there is something in there that does need, like I said, for security reasons or functionality reasons or modernity reasons, right? You know, they, they're using older tools that worked three years ago that, you know, for whatever reason, you, you have some reason to not want to use it now. Then you can start working around some of those issues, right? You can find the, the library for, you know, maybe you adopt react or view or something right and you you replace that functionality just for those features with it and just make it work you know or stimulus or hotwire really want to dive into hotwire but you know that kind of thing too so stimulus is pretty nice because it works out of the box of webpacker without too much effort at yeah all. like there's almost zero config that you do and the stimulus js site talks you through the like three lines that you need and the like three files that you have to include. Like it's super easy and it really does, it It just works and it actually lives up to its advertising. It's pretty great in that way. Yeah. Yeah, it's almost like Basecamp made them to work together. It's weird, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I, so yeah, speaking of like these difficult things, right? Like so far the things that I found that are the most difficult to deal with Webpacker are not, modern things but it's it's hey i want some old stuff to talk to some new stuff right and when you go get that theme off of theme forest 
you know you don't know what version of bootstrap they're using and they have jquery 1.2 mm-hmm. or something mm-hmm. you know you, you don't know because i feel like all those people on theme forest are like they're just getting it to work and they're just like pushing it out they're not busy yeah. they don't care about updating or anything like that so that is what you live with when you get that stuff off of theme forest yeah i've run into the same thing with i bought a mobile theme or a mobile setup mobile app that was written in react native right and i ran into the same kind of thing the react native and the plugins were just old enough to not work on a modern machine with a modern xcode right and i'm like uh, do i have an old enough machine somewhere in my house right and yeah yeah because because if i did and i could get it to compile then i could upgrade it push the changes up and then pull it down on my up-to-date machine and I'd be okay. I had that trouble too. I ended up not being able to do that. I ended up, because what I wanted was just like you said, I wanted to be able to create a working version so then I could update everything and then see, you know, compare and see if everything was working. And I never could create the working version. So I had to blindly update. It was for mm-hmm. a client project and they needed it. So that's what we did. Yeah. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to throw something in here. What is the value in doing a deep dive? Surely a deep dive is the opposite of the Rails way. Uh, the whole point of Rails way is we kind of use the magic commands and trust in DHH and its infinite wisdom. And we don't dig into the to the internals. So, you know, w- what is the advantage of digging into these libraries and finding out how they work under the hood? You know, you understand how the code works so you can faster fix something if something isn't working you can extend some libraries if you know how they work under the hood and sometimes you even discover other things when doing the deep dive so when i did the deep dive with the sidekick i discovered that redis has some many useful features that i wasn't aware before so this is another advantage and i think it's really fun when you discover that the tool that might be complex in your mind before it's quite simple it just requires uh, some debugging into the source code but you know those things were built uh, by developers so there is no magic behind it we can also build something like that and this is uh, really rewarding but it's not comfortable at the first sight Did you work your tail off to get that senior developer gig just to realize that senior dev doesn't actually mean dream job? I've been there too. My first senior developer job was at a place where all of our triumphs were the bosses and all the failures were ours. The second one was a great place to continue to learn and grow, only for it to go under due to poor management. And now I get job offers from great places to work all the time. Not only that, but the last job interview I actually sat in was a discussion about how much my podcast had helped the people interviewing me. If you're looking for a way to get into your dream job, then join our Dev Heroes Accelerator. Not only will we help you get the kind of exposure that makes you attractive to your dream employer, but you'll be able to ask them for top dollar as well. Check it out at devheroesaccelerator.com. Yeah, this reminds me a little bit of when I started to learn Ruby fundamentals after I'd been programming Rails for a year or so. And like all of the syntax that I thought was so convenient in Rails, it turned out it's just like, oh, no, that's just basic Ruby syntax, right? They're just taking advantage of it and making it look really convenient so that it seems intuitive that this follows that. 
Yeah, that's right. Uh, and I usually when I do interviews with the race developers, I tend to ask if the present and blank methods are available in the pure Ruby. And most of the developers say that they are available while they are implemented in Rails and you know not available without them. But they are really simple, so you know, it's just the, the magic, <laughs> you know. Yeah, good old active support. So one other question that I have is when you're do, do you do any like front end or end end testing and do you just run like a compiled assets build when you do that kind of testing or is, is there some kind of end to end testing you do in on your development machine just kind of as you go i'm not uh, working on end to end tests quite often usually those tests are made so i just edit the unit test when i have to Mm-hmm. But when I write the end-to-end test, um, I use standard Capybara and stuff like that. Right. So you know, the Webpack Dev Server uh, helps with this also. Do you do any front-end testing? Because I know that Webpack can facilitate some of that too. Oh no, uh, not yet. Okay, I don't either. So don't feel bad. I was just curious. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I have no. I I don't have anything in my experience either, because I've only used basically like a lot of That's what customers stuff. are for. That's what customers are for. <laughs> That's the front end. Yeah, somebody's going to play this back on JavaScript Jabber and be like, so Chuck. Yeah, no, Copybara, I think, is a pretty good tool for for applications, right? Mm-hmm. That are, that have a back end and a front end. It's fantastic for that, or for, for us to do that. I'm not saying there's no place for JavaScript testing, but I feel like that for okay, so I've worked at places where we didn't do testing anyway, and and so that was I believe in tests, but I'm not the person that like necessarily converts an entire organization in it over. If that makes sense, I'm not. I don't know. I've never been that person, but yeah, I feel like I feel like it's always been a big enough lift, and we just didn't have enough front end expertise at those places to make it happen. And at the places that I worked at where we had a front end app had front end expertise, I wasn't the person that made it happen. So <laughs> I got to take advantage of somebody else's work there. But for everybody else, when you're just like creating a Rails app and then you create your small JavaScript front end, if that's you know your use case, Copybara works pretty good for that. Yeah, and Copybara really works for web scrapping. When the system does not expose API, you can always use Copybara to, to scrap the, you know, the data like a normal user with filling mm-hmm. all the forms, clicking buttons. It's really tricky, not stable enough, but you know it works, so it might be used on production also. Yeah, well, and if you really want to push it and your your front-end UI is is that important to you, you can always use a cypress.io or something like that because it will do the end-to-end stuff for you. So, And it's it's a really sweet tool. I'm, I'm really impressed with it. It's good to hear. I haven't, I haven't uh, tried it out on a project yet, so... Yeah, the project that I'm working on for my full-time job right now, we're also getting into React and we're all of our shared components for across the other apps come in a storybook. And that's also a really convenient way of using and demoing components and stuff like that. And it gives you enough to where you can really figure out how that stuff goes together. And so, yeah, that's a convenient front-end way of looking at things too. Have you gotten your storybook to work with Webpack then? 
because I thought that that was one of the edge cases that Webpack struggled with. I don't. No, I just cloned the shared repo and then started the storybook. So I I don't know what the story is there as far as okay. Webpack. But yeah, I could be mistaken, but that's what I was thinking was one of the problematic use cases. No. And when they built it, whatever version of storybook they're using is on node 10, not node 14. So I actually had to install NVM and then say, use the old version of node. So yeah, I I really don't have a whole lot of authority to speak there because I'm just figuring this stuff out now. So yeah. And there's so many different use cases, right? Like, so the way that I build apps, right, is different Mm -hmm. from your experience building apps. It's different from Luke's experience building apps and probably yours as well, Pavel, right? Like we all just experience different use cases that other people haven't. So, yep, absolutely. So one one thing, Pavel, that I'm curious about, because my understanding is, is that kind of the Rails way of doing things is that you still use sprockets for other static stuff like CSS and images, right? And you used Webpacker for JavaScript. But you can use Webpack to compile CSS and build image sprites and all that stuff. So are you using it for anything other than JavaScript? And if so, where? Uh, not yet. Uh, I read about that it can handle also the style sheets, but I haven't tried it yet. So I cannot share my experience on this area. Yeah. If anybody is using Webpacker for anything other than JavaScript, I'd love to hear about it. In fact, I'd love to get you on the show and just kind of have a deeper conversation about that because I'm sure there are trade-offs and I'm sure that there are reasons why you might want to and there are reasons why you might not want to. And so, yeah, I'd, I'd love to dive into that as well as the how and just kind of decide whether or not that's a direction that we may want to consider going in as a Ruby and a Rails community in the future. There's that is quite a lot of churn, isn't there, in Webpack at the moment, especially I think it's going from four to five. It is, yeah, uh, which was out in October, I believe. That's quite a big bump. So I was working a Create React app that got accidentally bumped from four to five. And obviously that's doing the whole asset pipeline, the whole asset um, pipeline in Webpacker. And that can be a bit tricky journey. So my top tip is mm-hmm. you know, pick a version and stick with it. Yeah. Yeah, that's another angle on this too, Luke. You, you said Create React app. Have you actually tried to implement a React app separate from Rails and then bring it in through something like Webpacker? Yeah, so that's that's uh, one of the projects I'm working on. That's how they do it. The Rails is in the back end and the is a create React, React app that is effectively the front end. And then you've, you've uh, if you're not careful, you wound up with two Webpacks. You've got your Webpack and your Rails and then your mm-hmm. Webpack and your create React app and uh, things things get fun fast. <laughs> I'll bet. Yeah, how do you manage that? I deleted the whole Webpack config file and rewrote it from scratch. It's uh, <laughs> I just ripped out, had to take out the whole of the Create React app code and just mm-hmm. completely redo it step by step because uh, I wasn't smart enough to find out what the problem was. And mm-hmm. then you just say, "What well, this is the Babel bit, this is the image processing bit, and you just build it up step by step. So my understanding of short Powell, Powell, correct me on this, is that the what, what Webpacker does is it goes around looking for file extensions. And it, it has like, if, if this has a .js on it, then do this. Yes, that's correct. So 
then you you build it up and you say, right, you've got your JS files now. Go and have a look for the PNGs and you know, do something else to them. And you can mm-hmm. chain rules together. And that's in the webpack.config.json file. Oh, I'm not sure about this. Yeah. And I think you can use all the formats. Like, I think you can make your webpack config either YAML, JSON, I don't know what the other format would be, but I was thinking there were like three formats that you could be have it in. JS. I think you can have your config also be JS. So in my my project, because it was a bit older, it had a load of JSX files floating around, and it took in a couple of hours for me to work out what was going on. And then you have to decide how you're going to do your module loading. It's great fun. Highly recommend it. The I, I think you know you called your you called your blog Long Live Ruby. I think JavaScript is is going to keep Ruby alive forever. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, if, quite honestly, if there was if if it wasn't JavaScript, I'd be worried. But every time I sit down and I kind of do a deep dive into Next.js or something, I think, yeah, I think people are going to keep doing Ruby for a long time. <laughs> nice. I definitely was going to say that I do use Webpack to form to serve my CSS and and my images, but I don't know. I don't know if it was right or wrong. I just felt like, well, I was ripping off the Band-Aid on JavaScript, so I would just do the same thing for my CSS and mm-hmm. images. And actually, to be honest, like I never had trouble converting. I, I've only ever had trouble with JavaScript stuff. Never once have had right. any trouble whatsoever with any of the CSS or images. It just straight up works out of the box. No problems. Good deal. I tell you, I tell you one thing that that is quite topical. So I was uh, working on this Next.js app, and because it's a Webpack pipeline to build it, yeah, I was pulling in data from a Mongo database, which had some variances on it, and I thought, well, I'm not sure, you know, not sure what's happening here to trigger this. What I would want to do is to drop in to that environment yeah just see what's going on you know from within that environment now obviously if it's um in the browser which this was you can just set breakpoints but you are not in that same environment after you go through your tooling in javascript because uh in my case it was a kind of es6 syntax error that code has now been gone through a compiler so i can't drop into an environment where i probably can use that same syntax and one of one of the things things about ruby is that that at no point am i in a situation where i can't drop in to that and have a REPL and work out exactly where the bug is so this situation that you're discussing is exactly what that debug flag that i was talking about earlier in this in this episode was all about so you can debug during the compilation slash, yeah, the compilation process or whatever, right? It was also a pain in the butt to get set up, but but it worked. So I'm sorry. It was actually fairly easy to get set up, except that I do everything in Docker containers. So it was it was more painful to get set up because I had to create another Docker container and expose the debug port. Anyway, it was it was a fun mess because I had to do some extra stuff, but that was really about it. And there's, uh, I did have to go find how to get my browser working to connect to the node debugger. But that's what's going on, is you're in the node environment that's doing the compilation, right? 
is this is the thing that runs on the magic core, is it? Uh, what? Well, you use in, in the webpack. Usually, it's kind of sitting on port three thousand. Oh, so web. So okay. So let's say that you have your webpack dev server running, right? So you expose a port for that. The I'm trying to see. I I think that I even still have this commented out. Yeah. So if you want to debug your app, the default yeah. port I guess is nine two two nine or whatever. But you still have to serve on like probably thirty thirty five, which is going to be your dev server, and yep. then you have to run your webpack webpack server in debug mode, webpack dev server in debug mode, and then like I use Chrome a lot, so in your Chrome browser you have to Hang connect on. So, so debug Chrome to the node. <laughs> dev uh, for me debug mode is dev mode. Okay, so what I'm trying to say here is you super, you pointed super out dev mode. Yeah, yeah. You pointed out that when you're in your browser, right, you're not you're not in the context of the compilation, right? Yeah. Uh, the issue in order to get the context of the compilation, you've installed Node on your machine somewhere. Webpack Webpack is basically running in that Node environment to compile all your JavaScript files. Then when you open up a web page, all the compilation's done, right? It's over. And so that's why you don't have your context inside your compilation like you're sure. talking about. So if you want to get in debug inside the compilation process, you have to hook into the actual node compilation environment, which is what is unfriendly and tough to do. Is there a browser extension? Uh, I think it, well, the one that I found comes default with Chrome. You just have to go into some of the one Chrome config page and then enable it. And then you can get into it or whatever. And then, yeah, you have to run your Webpack server using the right flag, which is made easier for you because, as Pavel has pointed out, you can run the Webpacker dev server binary and just pass it the right flag. And it handles like telling the Webpack dev server to run in debug mode, slash pull up these files, all that kind of stuff. It's messy. And it wasn't straightforward for me to find either. So I, uh, and on top of that, as we just discussed, it's also not easy to think about, right? Because you're thinking from a Rubyist standpoint, hey, I should just be able to put a breakpoint here, a debug thing here, and I should be able to just figure out what the problem is. And that works just fine in Ruby because we're always hooked into the same environment all the time. But when we're talking right. about this JavaScript stuff, yeah, you're running a separate compile process that we don't run typically. Like We just don't do that in Ruby because we're an interpreted language. So you have to think about that. Good deal. Is there anything else on Webpacker that we failed to cover that we should have? I think everything that is common aside right now, John explained it, everything, how it works with debugging. The difficult thing is that the node has its own environment variables and the Ruby has its own environment variables. So we have like six combination uh, and it's sometimes quite difficult to get the idea behind it. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's a certain level of that with especially when it's unfamiliar and it's a, it's a system that's I guess not part of kind of the core rails like webpack is. But yeah, I I agree with you to the extent that yeah, you get you go out of your way, you spend a little time with it and then yeah, you know, some of the stuff that John's saying, you know, it starts to really add up, you know, and 
what he's saying, you know, I kind of envision some of it now because I've banged against some of it and I'm going, oh yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And some of it I'm going, okay, I need to go fiddle with that a little bit more because I'm I'm having a little trouble just kind of seeing the pieces. And so, yeah, if you're if you're not quite sure what some of this is, I recommend, yeah, you go in and you play with the webpacker.yaml, go fiddle with the webpack, uh, JSON config, go fiddle with some of this other stuff, walk through a webpacker tutorial, go look at the documentation, and then come back and listen to this again, right? Because uh, at the end of the day, what we're putting this out for is not just a gee whiz, hey, webpacker, it, we're putting this out so that you know we can put some information into your hands so that you can level up and be able to contribute to your team or contribute on your own projects or, you know, get that startup you're working on up or, you know, whatever it is that you're working on, you know, we want to see you move ahead with, you know, your skills. So anyway, I think, and then go read, go read uh, Pavel's blog post too. I was just going to throw one, one comment in here that I think gets in the way of Ruby developers and dealing with some of these problems, which 